0: Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. With widespread corruption, we also get the silence of God. It's a principle, and it's there, that there are times when God doesn't talk to the people. There are whole seasons. For instance, when Malachi finished up, 400 years goes by for Israel, and they hear nothing from God. So, people are like, why is there a gap in the Bible? It's not a gap. God's not talking. There's nothing to write. So, that's why we call it the Word of God, as we're recording all the instances where God acted on behalf of humanity. So, we have these big gaps. And so, verse 1 of Samuel 3 says that's where we're at. It's important to note 1 Samuel chapter 1 and chapter 2. Even though there's what seems like a silence from God when the people are going astray, it's not that God isn't active. Because during that time, he's doing things. So I got a phone call this week, which was odd because I'm working on that first verse. And somebody contacted me and they said, what was going on in the Bible when Aristotle was teaching in Greeks? And my answer was nothing. That was a period of silence from God. But what God was doing with the Greeks was he's providing the spread of a language that would equip the New Testament. So make no mistake about it, the move of Alexander the Great and his sweeping through the area at that time, historically that ideally set up the gospel being spoken in a very particular language versus Hebrew, which is super general, which is great for prophecy. Not only that, the Roman Empire is rising into power during that time, creating a road and shipping system to where you could get anywhere in Europe northern Africa, and even into Asia using Roman trade routes that were peaceably maintained by soldiers. The ideal situation to create and spread a church within 50 years. Like, so the world is changing during, so God's at work even though he's not directly speaking to his people. And so it's interesting that we're, we find ourselves in that time. It says the boy ministered to the Lord before Eli. Um, the word minister is to serve in the Hebrew. And we've seen that word a few times now. And that ministry is that idea of just helping out, doing things. Under Eli, he does it before Eli, which means that Eli would be the one telling him what to do. So clean up the ashes over here and take care of this over here and do that. And he's doing it. And it's this idea. That the word rare there, where the word of the Lord was a rare in those days. The word rare has to, it implies a, a value. It's usually used with gems. So it's a very limited, precious kind of thing. And it doesn't say the word of was Lord was gone, just that it was rare. And it doesn't happen as much. Verse 2 says, And it came to pass at that time, while Eli was lying down in his place, when the, his eyes had begun to grow so dim that he could not see, and before that, the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord, where the ark of God was, and while Samuel was lying down, that the Lord called Samuel. So you get this sense, it's almost like a movie scene, like it's getting set up like right before the lamp flickers out, it's on this last little bit of oil, and that little thing, the, the before the lamp of God goes out in the tabernacle, you got this, at the last moment, Samuel shows up, and it gets about as dark as it can get, and then all of a sudden it's there. Josephus, the historian, says Samuel's about 12-year-old at this time, but that's not biblical, it's just an extra-biblical source. Um but 12 is kind of significant. That's the age Jesus kind of went down to the temple. Uh, for the Jewish culture at this time, that's when boys would have their bar mitzvahs. Uh, so it is the age of accountability. So Samuel is serving before the Lord from when he's a little youngster, getting little tunics from his mom. And, but when he hits 12, he's going to be accountable. And it's right at that moment that he starts hearing from God himself. And not God through Eli and and being obedient to Eli, but he hears from God for the first time. So that's the story we got tonight to start off, is we get this example of God talking to a human. And I've had a few of you say, how do you know when God's talking to you? Well, for Samuel, it wasn't that confusing. Um, And it came to pass at that time is an immediate time marker. Uh, So when Israel is super dark, there's this thing about to happen. Uh, And the Lord calls Samuel. So... And, and, you know, you think of it as like, for me at least, this would be my one Lord of the Rings reference for the night, maybe my first of two. When Gandalf shows up at the turn of the tide, and you see that theme in the Bible where at the last minute, that's when God shows up. When there's no more hope to be seen, this is the light that shines. And, and Samuel is that little light that shines, little 12-year-old kid is one of the only honorable priests in the temple, and God speaks to him, and that's this moment. But Eli, the high priest, his eyes are going dim. He's getting blind. He can't see. Uh, He's laying down. He's kind of not doing anything. So the person who's supposed to be the light for Israel is lying down and blind. And the kid that's probably the youngest, because most priests would start serving at age 30. So Samuel's the youngest priest in that temple by far, uh, according to what we know about culture. We don't know of any other youngsters in the temple. And he answered and said, here I am. And so he ran, I'm sorry. And before the lamp of God went on the tabernacle and the Lord where the ark was, that the Lord called Samuel and he answered, here I am. So he ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. And he said, I didn't call, lie down again. And he went to lie down. Samuel's so unfamiliar with the voice of God. Like he's serving, he's ministering to the saints in the temple, but he doesn't know what God's voice sounds like. So when he hears it, he thinks it's Eli because he's so used to answering Eli. Also, this image of laying down by the person you serve so that he's running into Eli means he's probably in the next room or real close. He's at least close enough to where he thinks it's Eli that called him. And if he's an old man and he's half blind, it's like, what do you need? How can I help? Right. So he runs in and he does it. Um, and he, here's the other thing. Samuel thinks he hears an audible voice. So that's the claim here. It's so audible, he thinks it's another human. Like, because he's not dumb, right? He knows what a voice sounds like. So he runs in, and, he's, and, and this is just one of the ways God talks in the Bible. He actually talks, and you actually hear a voice. Um, today, when people hear voices, we think that might be, something might be wrong. Um, and and that, was not, that was the same then, too. Like, it was not a common thing to hear a voice. It was so uncommon, Samuel thinks it's Eli, Right, but he does. Um, he runs in, says, "Here I am." That's a great, great way to respond when your master calls you. Whether or not it's God, if if your boss says, "I need you for something," one of the right responses is, "I'm right here. What can I do for you?" And that's the words of a servant, even though he doesn't think he's saying it to God. Also, note that Samuel runs. Do you see the word there? He runs to Eli. That's another great way to respond when you are serving or ministering to somebody. You don't do it with the begrudging, lean backwards, sullen, whoa, what do I got to do now? You do it with the, I'm here and I'm so excited to help. It's my pleasure to help you. And that attitude Samuel has, you get a sense of what kind of kid he was, the kind of kid you want to have in your middle school classroom. You know, Can somebody clean the chalkboard? And Samuel's already got it half done. You know, he's that kind of kid. So God's looking for people like this. I just want to know if God's calling me into service. Well, are you working? Because he likes people who work. We don't see an example in the Bible where he gets idle people to do things for him. He generally captures people when they're doing work. And that's no difference here. Samuel's in work mode when he's hearing from the Lord. So in this sense, by the way, here I am, what can I do? That puts Samuel in the same category as other people that respond to God. Namely, this now puts him in the same school as Abraham, Jacob, and Moses. Other three people that their response was, here I am, what can I do? Or here I am, send me. But verse 6, then the Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel arose, went to Eli, and he said, here I am, you called for me? And he answered, I did not call my son. So my son would usually be a term of affection, but at one in the morning or late at night, it might be just a term of intentional patience. I didn't call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know that the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. He was hearing it, but he didn't realize it was God. And, I, and again, if we're looking for like, how do we know if God's talking to us? Part of it is understanding what we're listening for. Because he's actually hearing an audio, audio voice and he still doesn't recognize it. It's not revealed. It's not something he can see. God repeats himself. That's another principle of this. If God's actually talking to you, It's pretty okay to get confirmation, which is what Samuel's doing right now. Because God doesn't just talk to you once. If He really wants you to hear a message, you'll hear it again and again and again until you can't ignore it anymore. Because this is the Almighty God needing you to do something, right? He's given you commands on how to live, but when He needs you to actually do a thing, we see consistently through the Bible, God never gets misunderstood. He might get rejected and ignored but people never not know what he's saying or that it's from him. So it's slightly different this time. God repeats himself, but this time he brings in Samuel. And Samuel did not yet know the Lord to have it revealed to him. Um, But God's servants, you and I, that comes with maturity. The longer you're a believer and the longer you're listening for God's voice, the more you hear it and the more you recognize it. Not only that, we have this huge advantage over Samuel. We actually get a whole book where God speaks to his people. God's word, that's why we call it God's word, is God said things that are true for humanity, and when we read them, we can apply them. So we actually have this wonderful thing called the Bible that he speaks through too. So all of God's servants learn how to respond to him. Um, I also like the idea that God's not so overpowering. He doesn't come like in the movies. Like in the movies, there's like reverb effect on his voice, and it's usually Charlton Heston speaking or something like that. You know, Michael, I have come to talk to you. And there's like, it's not like that. It's it's really subdued. Elijah, we see the same kind of thing. There's an earthquake and a fire. Um, and it's. But God's voice isn't in the earthquake in 1 Kings 19. But the Lord was, wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. Just a Samuel. So it was when Elijah heard that he wrapped his face in his mantle, went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here Elijah? God often speaks in single sentences. God's succinct and he knows how to operate. I feel that it's appropriate to tell like this is super rare, but for one of the things that led me to teaching the Bible was I was at a keynote address it was one of my, like in academia if you are the keynote at a conference, that's a big deal. Like you in your field are being respected for being an authority in your field. So I'm doing a keynote at Indiana University. And I'm getting ready to get on stage. The crowd's out there, which that's, you know, I'm getting, I'm excited. I'm going to share the research and had some good things to say, some commentary. And I literally get up at the podium and I'm looking at my notes. And one of my practices before I would do public speaking is I'd pray before I talked. Like, Lord, help me get this how you want it. And I'm saying that prayer. And in the middle of the prayer, I honestly hear a, Sean, this isn't what I have for you. That's a disturbing thing to hear. And I wanted, I tried to get the footage, but I couldn't, but I actually turned around because I thought somebody had come up on the stage. But it wasn't overwhelming. It wasn't this echoing thing, but it was just that still small voice behind your ear. You honestly felt like somebody was just talking to me. And, and not only that, it resonated. When God's word speaks and he knows your heart and where you're at, and I'm all filled with this pride, you know, I'm, I've arrived, this is it, this is the show. I've been working for 10 years on research, I'm finally here. And God's like, no you're not, this isn't what I have for you. And then you get this sense where that plants a seed in you, and God's word does something over time. And then you realize, okay, I didn't realize it at the time, but that was God talking to me. But super rare, like in my lifetime, maybe once, maybe twice, Has God intervened in that kind of way? Most of the time, it's just faithfully doing what God's asked you to do. So there's these things, and I'm guessing we have stories of God talking in this room. I just wanted to share one for me, and I know that sounds weird. For non-Christians, that just sounds weird. Sean, you're hearing things. You should get some help. But it wasn't like that. It wasn't like where I felt like I needed therapeutic. I felt like it was a healing word into my heart. When God speaks to us, it actually heals, and it builds, and encourages. It doesn't tear down, and it doesn't contradict God's word. Right, so it's it's there's a rational side to it too, but it came at just the right moment, just the right way, just the right tone. It was perfect, and I don't even remember giving the keynote address, like because that was all I could think about is like what the heck was that? So verse eight, verse or verse seven did not yet know the Lord wasn't revealed to him yet, but he heard it. Verse eight, and the Lord called Samuel again the third time, so that he arose and went to Eli and said, "Here I am." And you did call for me. You're messing with me, Eli. I know I heard you, right? So at this point, Samuel is developing some maturity. This time, he's, you can bet he's not going to bed and sleeping. Like he's laying in bed waiting for that voice to come again. Then Eli perceived, being the mature guy here, he perceived that the Lord had called the boy. Therefore, at least Eli said to Samuel, go lie down and it shall be if he calls you that you have to say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. This is important principle stuff around how to interact with God if and when, praise God, this ever happens to you. But that idea of Eli being the high priest, God would have been talking to him in order to help run Israel for years. This is what he does. So the fact that the Lord had been silent in verse one means the Lord wasn't talking to Eli. But then all of a sudden, Samuel's getting talked to. Think of what that says to Eli. Oh, the Lord's handing this off to Samuel not my sons. Remember, his sons are wicked from the last chapter. So then Eli perceived that the Lord had called the boy. Eli gets it. Okay, this is what God's talking to Samuel now. So then he passes off the information from a wise believer to a new 12-year-old believer. Here's how you handle this. You just say, I'm ready to hear. Or specifically, speak Lord. And the word Lord there is Yahweh, naming the Lord you're talking to, speak Lord for your servant hears. So to be in that holy situation, just be ready to listen. That's outstanding advice. So to break down the advice, he says, go lie down. In other words, go get some private time with God. Go be on your own. Be, be in some, if you're constantly surrounded by noise and busyness, God's not talking. The world's talking. So get some time on your own. Number two, if, this is great advice, Eli has some wisdom here, if he calls you, don't presume that God's going to talk to you. I, a lot of Christians do that. I do that. Well, if I just go spend some quiet time with God, he will speak to me. That's not the case. That's not the wisdom we see here. He may or he may not. He's God. You don't control him with your prayer time. But he hears you, but he might not speak to you. So if he calls you, don't presume, then three, speak Lord, your servant, when Eli tells him to respond verbally, I think that's great advice. It's just weird if you do it in a public space. Mm -hmm. Speak, Lord, I hear you, right? I don't think that's part of going off into private space to do this, is that you speak and you pray and you talk to God. And then last, it says, speak, Lord, for your servant hears Fourth piece of advice on how to respond to these situations is humble yourself before the Lord God Almighty. You're a servant. You're a minister to God. So it's not for you to dictate to God what's going to be said next. So that idea of humbling himself. And then five, the fifth piece of it is your servant hears, actually listen and see what's going to be said. And again, we have the word of God. So you can get some private time, go off on your own, read the scriptures today. I know people that are like, I'm just going to keep reading until God speaks to me, right? And that if I'm reading five chapters a day, I'm just going to keep reading until I hit something that I needed for today. And that's, I think, an interesting way to approach Bible study. You're going to get a lot of it some days, um, but don't presume that it's going to happen and humble yourself when it does. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. You can bet he's not sleeping. He's just laying there waiting. You know, when you're a 12 year old and you have those kind of supernatural moments, everything from nightmares to God talking to you, like you're not sleeping, you're just laying there watching the walls, seeing the shadows move. Now the Lord came and stood and called, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. So now he's getting his name said twice. That's important. Genesis 22, it's Abraham, Abraham. In Acts 9, it's Saul, Saul. When God repeats your name, you're either in trouble or you didn't listen the first time. So that idea that it's being repeated, I just think it's interesting that we start to see the character of God because he acts the same with Abraham as he does with Saul, or later to be Paul, right? There's that repeating of names. You start to see a, a character there to some degree. It said he stood. Did you see that in verse 10? Which implies there's an incarnate being standing in front of Samuel. So this is what we would call, if God's incarnate, we're talking about a Christophany. So this is a moment where God incarnated himself into something that could stand in front of Samuel and speak with a human-sounding voice. I think God's just messing with Samuel, like, honestly. Hey, Samuel! And then he hides. Right? Samuel gets up, goes to Eli, and then he's like, hey, Samuel! And then he hides. Like, I could see God having a sense of humor with this, but he's involving Eli in the understanding that he's passing something off, but he's involving Samuel so that Samuel learns to recognize his voice. Like there's also a grace and a love here. But I, I, like, I like thinking of it as humor too. But what a great way to pray when we start Bible study. What an outstanding way to start Bible study. And Susan kind of did this. I was touched by that. To humble yourself before the Lord and say things like, Speak, your servant hears you. Lord, I'm not just opening your Bible and trying to hear you in vain. I'm actually here to listen. Listen. I'm not just reading it so I can check off my daily Bible study thing and make sure I'm okay with my own sense of religiosity. I'm doing it because I actually want to hear what you got to say in my life. Verse 11. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from the beginning to the end. Ooh, ouch. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity at which he knows because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Ouch. This is heavy stuff. This is God proclaiming a curse by telling first Eli in the last chapter but now he's telling Samuel which means that perhaps Eli just ignored it. And he still had, he had this period of time between when God talked to Eli and when God talks to Samuel, Eli could have removed his sons from office. But apparently he didn't do that, as we'll see in the rest of the chapter. So Eli did not respond to God's voice. The natural consequence is, I'm going to work through Samuel. If you won't do what I'm asking you to do, I'm going to find a 12-year-old, and he's going to do what I'm asking him to do. God doesn't need us. He needs willing servants. Right? He can work without us, with or without us. But I'd rather he worked with us says, I'm going to do all that I've spoken. This is another way that God speaks to people. And I think this is, again, we have a few people in the room that asked about this. Not only does God speak directly to Samuel, but he also spoke to Eli. And there were two consistent messages. God often, we've seen this happen in the kingdom all the time. That, yes, he might be speaking to me. But when somebody gets so carried away with God speaking to me language, then they can self-delude, mm-hmm. right? They can become their own little echo chamber. But when God's saying something to me and then he independently says something to somebody else and it's the same thing, like behold, wake up, that might be God speaking into your life. So when God talks to Eli, Eli ignores God, then God says the exact same thing to Samuel and tells Samuel to go tell that to Eli. God's really talking to Eli through Samuel here. That's the second time he's shared this message that your family's in trouble. So God tells man, <laughs> God tells tells man about God in chapter 2, now that the word is confirmed by Samuel, we get a second witness. Eli hears it, Samuel hears it. So another, oh, another way to think about if God's talking to you is look for confirmation. Am I seeing or hearing this anywhere else? And that's okay. Gideon asked for confirmation and God didn't get upset with him. Like he did the whole sheepskin thing, right? It's okay to do that because we don't want to leap and not be doing what God wants us to do. That's foolish. But we do want to be in rationally and reasonably moving forward according to what God has for our lives. He did not restrain them. We know what Eli is responsible for. He's a parent that didn't do his job. And and he's more than that. He's a high priest that should have got these two young priests out of their office because they were corrupting it. Um, It shall not be atoned for. If sacrifices are an image of our heart towards God and us giving something up for God and Eli hasn't done it, there 's a consequence for that, so this is this is heavy stuff. If we reject the work of God and we deny it there 's nothing there to save us after that and, and so it 's one of those things where in the New Testament that same principle comes through. If you reject Jesus Christ, the work of God on earth there 's not much that atones for that like you got, that is a decision making point so when God speaks to Eli and he ignores it. Eli made that choice. So it's not like God sends people to hell. People choose it. And they go there over God's dead body, like literally. So there's this idea here that, you know, it's hard sometimes to accept the fact that God does judge. But God does judge. That's biblical. And it's right there. It's about as forceful as you can get. And he's sharing that with Samuel because Eli didn't hear him. So now he's going to get the second witness. So Samuel laid down till morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. You think? <laughs> right? No, I don't want to tell him that, Lord. So Jonah did the same thing. Like God told Jonah to go do something. Jonah like went the other direction. Sometimes God tells us to do things that we know we should do. We don't have the heart to do it. Living in courage is not easy. So this is like, you really want to tell this adoring grandfather mentor figure that they're about to be cursed with no atonement possible? What a horrible thing for Samuel to say to Eli, right? He could get kicked out of the temple. There might be consequences. So it says he lay down till morning. I think truthfully, it doesn't say he slept. <laughs> he just laid there and he's going, oh, this is horrible. God, couldn't you say something like, go be nice to your neighbor? Like there's better messages that he could have had to give. But as a prophet, sometimes you got to tell people things truth in grace, not grace without truth. And they go together. So he opened the doors, which is a hint of the responsibilities Samuel had as the 12-year-old. He's the guy that opens up shop in the morning. Open the doors, clean it out. All the other priests are sleeping in. So he does these kinds of chores. He gets up and goes to work is what that verse is talking about. Like He's just doing his job. Verse 16. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he answered, here I am. Talks the same way to Eli as he does to God. If you get authority on earth, you get authority in heaven. You understand it. Like there's an idea that we serve and you just get good at it. Verse 17, and he said, what is the word that the Lord spoke to you? <laughs> Please don't hide it from me. God, do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the things he said to you. And then Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it's the, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Oh man, this is just, you get so much richness. There's no other ancient text that gets us inside the lives of the people like the Bible does, right? It's just an absolute comes alive in that sense. So Eli, he knows darn well what was happening and that's why it was revealed to him. He understood God's talking. Eli knew that when Samuel went back to his room, God would finish the conversation and because Eli had had those conversations all through his early priesthood. So he knows what they're like And, and the way he says this, it's like Eli knows what's coming. What's the word the Lord spoke to you? Don't hide it from me. So he can read a 12-year-old, right? Who's just minding his own business and not talking, right? No body language would hide this from Eli. So don't hide it from me. And then the idea of God do so to you more. He knows it's bad. Have God do to you what you're trying to hide from me right now if you don't tell me. So essentially what he's saying. So I think Eli actually understood the message was fairly negative too. (laughs) So... So Samuel laid to, her, he, he does that, he tells him everything. Um, and the response of Eli at the end of 18 this is interesting. It's the Lord, like it's confirmed. I know that's God, I heard the same thing. Let him do to me, let him, let him do what seems good to him. Like there's a resignation from Eli, he knows he's sinned. He knows there's a consequence for it. He's also a dad of two sons and he just doesn't have the will to rip those sons out of that position. So his failure as a high priest is, and we got the prophecy last week, this is the failure of the priesthood. This is the end of the priesthood. And the priesthood will go on all the way through the time of Jesus, but the life of the priesthood doesn't have the enacting power of the Holy Spirit for the rest of the time in Israel. So what does God do if he's not speaking through the high priest? From this very point forward, from verse 10 forward, or verse 18 forward, am I missing pages? Oh no, I'm not. Let him do what seems good to him. What's good to him is he's going to start speaking through prophets. He's not going to speak through the high hood, high priestiness. He's not going to speak through the high priests. And he won't for the rest of Israel's period. They'll do their duties at the temple with sacrifices, but it's going to be the prophets that God speaks through from here forward. And this is the moment where that happens. So God adjusts the plan. Um, verse 19, so Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. And let none of his words fall to the ground. Again, great writing in the Bible. Uh, meaning his prophecies all came to pass. Everything that God spoke through Samuel came to pass. So they started writing stuff from Samuel down. Uh, and the histories get really good. And that's this is probably when they started to write down his births, chapter 1 and chapter 2. And they're like, okay, we need to track this little 12-year-old guy because he keeps calling it right. So... Really, it's been 400 years since anybody had this kind of a connection outside the high priest's gym. You'd have to go back to Moses. Remember, Moses would just go into the tent and talk with God when he had questions. And there was this interaction with Moses and God. So Samuel seems to have that kind of, of, of thing. It says Samuel grew, that's biologically grew, but there's an intonation of a spiritual growth that happens there too. Verse 20, and all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, that's like saying from north to south, um, knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Everybody knows it. So you'd go in, you wouldn't talk to the high priest, you'd talk to Samuel, because that kid, he's talking to God. Then the Lord appeared again to, in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to, Sh- to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. I think that's kind of the chapter break, but then you get, you know, and the word of Samuel came to all of Israel is the first verse of the next chapter seems like the chapter breaks in a weird spot there, um, given the word and. um, But we get this thought that the word, verse 21, the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh, that's where the tabernacle is, by the word of the Lord. The word word there is speech, um, which would be an audible speech. And, and, And what I think 21 is saying there is that when the Lord revealed himself to Samuel, that's visual. But when it says, by the word of the Lord, that's audible. So it is as though he heard from him as a person that you would talk to in in the, the next room. And when you see that the Lord stood in that other verse, like there's an implication here that the Lord made regular stops with Samuel in an incarnate form. And the word being used there for word is actually the same kind of thing. What's interesting here, another little piece of phrasing here, and I just love this in the Bible. It says, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel and Shiloh by the word of the Lord. There's actually three uses of God in that verse. I don't know if you caught that. Um, And when it says the Lord revealed himself, there's a suggestion that there's a God, Yahweh, that's revealed in himself and that there's a word that comes through people. And, And you get this image of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's a triune God that's being represented in that verse. John 1-1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So it's the New Testament folks got this idea too, but they got it from here. And this is part of where those ideas come from. The Lord Himself, the Word of the Lord. One, two, three. And that's how Samuel interacted with God. He got the whole interaction. And the word of the Lord came to Samuel to all Israel. So not all of Israel hears from God. And this is one of the things in the church, like I struggle with this. We got too many people thinking they're hearing from God and we're all going in 29 directions. It's not how God tends to work. He tends to work through his representatives, two groups of people. And and so don't take it hard if you go a few years and you're not hearing from God himself. You have his Bible, we all have access to it. God does speak to his people through the Holy Spirit in mass, unlike the Old Testament. But there is an order to things, too, that seems to be throughout the Bible, God works through people to other groups of people. So that's a third way in these couple chapters we see the Lord talking to people. The Lord talks to Samuel in an audible voice. There's a presence of his word going out. There's a confirmation where he speaks through multiple people. And then we get that verse 1 of chapter 4. All of Israel gets to hear the word of the Lord through Samuel. So sometimes when you go to other people in the church, you go to other believers that are faithfully walking with the Lord, there's a confirmation that comes through that too. So you're hearing things, you're reading things in the Bible, you got two people telling you the same thing, you go to church, you you ask your pastor or you talk to somebody who you respect in the church and they say the exact same thing and then they point you to the Bible and it happens to be the same verse you were reading this morning. You can be pretty sure that's God talking to you. When you have that many things coming from that many directions, it lines up. And for believers, it's kind of cool because you realize how powerful God is, that he can operate on that many levels to the point where we don't even get it. We don't, like it's beyond us, but it's God and he's working. Now, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. It does not say that Israel went and talked to Samuel, right? So we should see that right up front because they're still screwing up when we look at the nation. Again, in chapter 2, I pointed out that we're contrasting the wickedness of Eli's sons with this cool Samuel kid. We're still contrasting. There's Samuel now being established as a prophet. Let's contrast that with the idiot Israelites that are doing everything they want to do. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped be- beside Ebenezer. The Philistines camped at Aphex, is right in the middle of Israel. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined in battle... Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Because you didn't talk to Samuel. That's why. And then let, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people went sent to Shiloh and they, that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, they were there with the Ark of the Covenant of the God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel shouted so loudly, the earth shook. That's loud. So Samuel is not going to show up till chapter 7. So just, that was Samuel. We got to hear what's going on with him in chapter 3. But now we're on to what the nation's doing, and they're going to screw up big time. Uh, this is a, it's set during a period of Philistine occupation. This is when Samson did his stuff. Uh, Israel goes out, which implies they're on the offensive. Nothing in the word of God that they have in the book says they should go on the offensive. Right? They're supposed to drive people out of the land. They're not supposed to just make war with people. Right? So there's this idea that they're submitting to the Philistines, which they should never have done. Now they're in physical combat with them. They lose 4,000 people. That's bad by anybody's standard. Uh, they go to the elders. They don't go to the high priest. They don't go to any priest. They don't even go to Shiloh. They just go to Shiloh to steal the ark. But they're not there to consult. They're not asking Samuel what to do. They're just doing whatever they want. And and then they blame the Lord. Why has the Lord done this? We see that all the time. Well, the Lord's doing all these horrible things and all this bad stuff. It's like, did the Lord do that, really? Or was that humans doing that? Most of the evil on the planet happens because of humans, not because God's ordained it. And so then people will point to the Crusades, and it's like, right, I don't see anywhere in the Bible where it says, go kill people that don't agree with you, right? That's not how that works. So yet we see that sort of thing happening, and then God gets a bad name because of the bad behavior of humans. So that's, I think, what this chapter is all about. The Ark, just as a reminder, is a box. It has gold around it. It has cedar, cedar in the inside. It holds three things. Remember what they are? Aaron's rod, which bloomed when it shouldn't have bloomed. The the manna and the law, the commandments on the tablets. So three things that remind us of God in, in different manifestations to the Israelite people. They're all held in this box. The box on top of it has two cherubim that guard a seat, and the seat of mercy, the mercy seat, sits on top of the law. And that's an image of how they should handle the law. The law should be wrapped in mercy, when we, when we apply it to people. So they take this symbol of God's relationship. They illegally take it out of the temple. They shouldn't take it. The only priests should take it out of the temple or out of the tabernacle. So they're breaking all the rules. Nobody fries. It's not like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, but they're thinking that the box has power. By the way, this is the same fallacy of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right? The box doesn't have power. God has power, and that box represents God. So when they bring the box out, but they fail to ask God to come along, they're putting their faith in a box. They're not putting their faith in Yahweh. So it, it, it goes bad. Um, it reduces God to a lucky charm, which is cringeworthy behavior, right? But that's what they're doing. In verse 4, it says, Hophni and Phinehas, our old wicked friends, they're there. They're all on board with this. This is awesome because they get to walk around like they're in charge. They got the box. So I guess there are priests there. I should I should say there are some priests there, but um, it's easy to love God when God's your puppet, and you can haul God along in a box and have him do whatever he wants for him. It's a lot harder to serve a God who's your boss, and that He's our Lord and Savior. Our Lord is someone we serve, but to start thinking God fits into our box, literally, it's not just a bad cliche. Like when He's our puppet, it's so much easier to think that we're believers. But when, when he's our master, that creates a different level. So Phineas and Hafni are going to manipulate the image of God in order to get what they want. They think this is going to work. Will it? We've been reading the Bible long enough to know that, no, this isn't going to work at all. So verse 6. Now when Phineas heard the noise and the shout, and they said, what does the, what does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? I'm sorry, the Philistines, not Phineas. So the Philistines hear the Israelites shouting, right? And they're like, oh, what's going on over there? Then they understood the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid. And they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, Who's, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? You hear all the bad theology these Philistines had? They, they think the box has power too. So they're no different. Essentially, Israel is no different from the Philistines. They have the same belief system. And it says, from the hand of these mighty gods. They don't even understand monotheism, right? But the, and again, the Israelites are right on board with this kind of thinking. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. They don't even know where the plagues happened. They didn't happen in the wilderness. They happened in Egypt. So that's not a fallacy in the Bible. It's just that Philistines don't know what they're talking about. Verse 9, be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you don't become the servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. This is old school talk. Conduct yourself like men and fight. It's very masculine. The Hebrew word gets used there by the Philistines. The word Hebrew means to cross. So they're calling the Hebrews crossers. Which, frankly, I think is interesting in the sense that the Philistines were also immigrants into the land. They came from kind of Cyprus or Crete or one of those islands, and they were settlers moving inland. Just like the Hebrews were settlers moving towards the sea. So they were bumping into each other. The Philistines come out of the territory that Dan should have conquered. The whole Philistine problem is because Dan didn't do their job. right? And the Danish are not from the tribe of Dan. That's (laughs) nonsense. Right? The tribe of Dan didn't settle in the west; they settled in the north and went away from this. But to call the Hebrews "crossers" over the water, I think it's interesting. But also in the English language, the fact that they're people of the cross, I think, is just kind of an interesting coincidence for us. But again, that's just me. They're saying woe to us. Notice that their woe is not does not change their behavior. You can believe in the power of God and not actually react to it. Philistines do. So the goal isn't that people believe in God. Have you heard that language? We just want people to believe in God. No, even the Philistines believe in God. They just don't understand and they don't serve and they don't follow. And their superstition, because they think it's fault, they think it's superstition. Their reaction is to man up. Literally, that's what they tell their soldiers: Let's fight this. Instead of submitting to this all-powerful God, they're going to fight this all-powerful God. The other thing with the Philistines' reaction is that elevates this battle to a spiritual battle. They do see it as a contest of gods, and we're going to see that here in a few verses too. So the fact that it's never happened before, that's also false. There's so many falsehoods in the Philistine statement. Like you can just list them all. But actually the ark has only come out in, battle, in the battle of Jericho. And that in the Battle of Jericho, there was no actual sword play until the walls had already fallen. right? They just marched around the city and sang songs with the Ark. So this idea that the Ark zaps bolts of lightning or something to that effect is not so far. We haven't seen that in the Bible. We'll see some things where people mishandle it later. These Greek settlers then, what makes the Philistines kind of bad in the ancient world or like scary, is they came in with the Greek iron technology. Their early Iron Age society. So they came in with armor that weighed 30, 40 pounds, and the Hebrews came in with, like, sticks and stones and little spearheads that would bend when they hit it. So the Philistines had this thick, heavy armor, um, and uh, we see them showing up with kind of that kind of equipment, and this is why Dan was scared to fight them, right? They're an intimidating force on the battlefield. So soon the Syrians and the Assyrians will kind of conquer them, but the Philistines kind of filled this power vacuum after the Midianites were killed. So Israel backs off the Midianites. The Philistines fill that gap as an armed hostile force in the land. Um, And they kind of uh they do that. So tons of errors there. And then the reaction of be strong and conduct yourselves like men. Verse 10. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And every man fled to his tent. I like that where they go is tents. Do they know tents are not that secure? It's like hiding under your blankets. There was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. It's even worse this time than it was when they didn't have the ark. Also, the ark of the covenant was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, died. Now, if you remember from last week, Samuel prophesied that this would happen. He prophesied that both kids would die on the same day. What he didn't prophesy is what's about to happen next. So you got crowds, noise, enthusiasm, shouting, big creative ideas like let's bring out the ark. This is a shiny box. They've never seen a shiny box before. And God's not in any of it. And like to me, I've, I just, I can't help but think of some of the things going on right now in the church. Like there's this balance of where God is and where he operates and what we think he should do, and how we think he should operate. What's amazing to me is how he operates in a little Bible study, but not in a light show, you know, that it doesn't always go the same way. And that's a tough thing for us to submit to, is God's going to work where God's going to work. And he doesn't need the shiny box to do his job, whatever that might symbolize to you. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they run to their tents, so we can easily make this mistake that if we, we think we control God, that it, it actually incites the enemy. It doesn't make things better with the Philistines. They actually ramp up and kill more people. So that idea of trying to get out but to do it without God is 30 times worse. Or what's four times? It's four times worse? No. Seven, this is where Grant gets his math skills. Seven times worse? Something like that? It's worse the 1970s, they dug up a Philistine piece of text that described this battle. So they, we have in archaeology, they mention that they took the ark. They even mentioned Hophni and one of the leaders that they conquered when they did this in the Philistine text. Um, and they mention how they took the ark and they made the ark bow to their god. This was a spiritual, when you battled other nations in the ancient world, it was about whose god was better. So in fact, God orchestrated this loss because Israel had lost the right to hold that thing for a while. Psalm 78, when God heard this, he was furious and he greatly abhorred Israel that he forsook the tabernacle at Shiloh, this is the fall of the Shiloh tabernacle, the tent that he had placed among men and delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand. And he also gave his people over to the sword and he was furious with his inheritance. All of this, the Philistines are getting used. They think they're winning right now, but they're actually helping God teach Israel a lesson. That without him, they're not much. So 1 Samuel 2.34 is the prophecy of Hophni and Phinehas dying, if you want to cross-reference. Verse 12. Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Now when he came there, Eli was sitting on a seat by the wayside watching. Remember, he's blind, so he's kind of reduced to just sitting by the street corner. And he's sitting by the wayside watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man, man came into the city and told about it, all the city cried out. So God didn't honor the ark move. Um, the, the run from Aphek, the battlefield, to Shiloh is about a 20-mile run uphill. So this guy from Benjamin, he's an athlete, right? And when he gets there, he's tired, his clothes are torn, there's dirt on his head. Those are traditional signs of mourning. Someone has died and he's mourning when we read that. Um, Jewish tradition. Again, I'm taking extra biblical sources here. In the Talmud, the Jewish tradition is this man from Benjamin that runs up from the battle is actually Saul, King Saul, and this is the first introduction of King Saul. Again, there's nowhere in our Bible that says that, but under Jewish tradition, uh, that's Saul running up the man from Benjamin. The Eli is so disregarded at this point. It's like his sons are off leading battles. But he's so disregarded, notice the man does not go to Eli, he goes to the city. Do you see that? Just runs right past Eli. Eli's heart trembling, I think he knows exactly what's happening because he's had this whole interaction with Samuel. So there's a benefit in understanding loss. Like this is a heavy chapter, right? But there's a benefit to us because all of scripture is for our instruction. There's a benefit for us to know that when God's not in it, we lose. And when we lose, one question should be: Is it because we ran out ahead of God without waiting for Him to catch up? And that's an important question for us to ask. You know, and when we have losses of thirty thousand, we should ask why. What happened here? And the correct response is to repent and return to God. They don't do that. Verse fourteen: When Eli heard the noise and the outcry, he has to ask about it. He said, "What does the sound of this tumult mean?" And the man came quickly and told Eli. Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. Then the man said to Eli, I'm he who came from battle and I fled today from the battle line. Again, Saul running away. This kind of fits the image. And he said, what happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there's been a great slaughter among the people and your, also your two sons, Hophni and Phineas, are dead and the Ark of the Covenant of the God has been captured. Notice how he goes from bad to worse. Like, uh, Israel fled, lots of them died, that's worse. Your sons are dead, that's even worse. The Ark has been captured, that's the worst it gets. Right? So the thing his heart was trembling about actually happens. Verse 18, Then it happened when he made mention of the Ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy, he was fat, is what that means. And he, and he had judged Israel 40 years, that's the end of Eli. So not, we don't get that in the prophecy. The prophecy said the two sons would die on the same day. It said nothing about Eli dying the same day. But he lives just long enough to see that Samuel's prophecy came true, which, okay, this is maybe a stretch, we can argue about it afterwards. But I think that's kind of a mercy. Because if Samuel's prophecy came true, Eli knows that God is still with this nation. Even though his sons are astray, even though the world looks like it's ending, even though everywhere you look outside the city, it's chaos, destruction, and God's glory just got hauled off by the barbarians. To know that Samuel was hearing from God himself, Eli dies knowing that God is still with this country. And there's a little teeny mercy there. I don't know either way, here's the news. He, it, it's not his sons that make him drop. It's that the Ark had been captured. So even Eli, you get this really complex character with Eli. He does some good things. He raises Samuel, and he does some bad things. He doesn't, re, he doesn't stop Hophni and Phinehas from doing their thing. It's a mixed character, and I'm curious to see, like, when we get to heaven, is are we going to be able to hang out with Eli and get to know this guy? Like, this is an odd kind of Usually when you see things in the Bible, they're a lot more black and white, but Eli's a really complex character. So is it a coincidence um, that he died? Um, we don't know. Um, the, the breaking of the neck, the only place we've seen that in the Bible before is this is the consequence for a donkey that doesn't get redeemed. And so I don't know if that's a connection to Eli or not, but the idea that he dies in such a way that you would kill an unredeemed donkey is a significant image to Jewish people. That would be something that's kind of interesting here. Uh, Exodus 13, 13, every firstborn donkey that you redeem, you should be redeemed with a lamb, and if you don't redeem it, then you break its neck. And so you see this image of him, and again, the reason he falls is he's kind of big, and when he hits that stone, he hits hard. I resonate with that. I wouldn't want to fall and hit a rock. I think it would be the end of me. Okay, now we move on to Ichabod. Not the legend of Sleepy Hollow, Ichabod. Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was with child. Oh, this just gets even worse. I forgot this. Okay. Due to be delivered, and when she heard the news that the Ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. She gives birth in the middle of all this. And about the time of her death, the woman who stood by her said, do not fear, for you've you've born a son. And she didn't answer, nor did she rep- regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because the father-in-law and her husband, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Again, God gives this, we saw this with like. Hannah, and we saw this with Ruth and Naomi, like God clearly weaves women into this narrative. And it's a woman that declares this to Israel as Samuel is still only 12 years old. And these words come out of her mouth and she sums it up really well. Um, She blames her husband and her father-in-law, which we've already kind of seen in this text. The Ark of the Lord has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband... The cause of the capture is Eli's ineptitude and Hophni and her husband Phinehas' arrogance and presumption. That's what breaks down the system. So we get this addendum to the tragedy, and we get this new child. The name Ichabod means what it says it means, glory departed from Israel. And, um, or, or shortly, it's specifically in the Hebrew, it's no glory. Right? So what a horrible name to give your kid. He's going to grow up, and everywhere he goes, it's like, what's your name? And My name's no glory. I'm nothing, right? That's literally what he gets to say to people when he walks around. It's a horrible name, Um, but I, I think they named with, they weren't trying to give him a good name. Also, there's this cruel, cold detachment, like this image of a mom that doesn't even care about her kid. There's something like, there's a huge disconnect there, right? And it doesn't take much for us to recognize just how broken not only this woman is, but how Israel must have felt as a nation, and that's expressed through this woman that completely doesn't care about our child. It's just broken. So again, we see this in the Old Testament. We get hard images, but they're also true images. And if we're grown-ups, if we're big boys and girls, we should accept those images because they're part of how God trains us, and they teach us. So this isn't an easy passage to absorb, but there's this idea that in contrast with this child that's born that has no glory, There's also this, on the other side of the story, there's this Samuel who keeps moving through the ranks in line with God. So while the nation's going into disaster, and you can see, we've seen a few examples of why the nation's going into disaster, God's still planting his seed of hope in the middle of all that. And so where God doesn't move the idolaters, he does move according to his will. He doesn't doesn't answer to puppet strings, but he does move things forward in his own way. So there's Ichabod. Then we get to 1 Samuel chapter 5. Y'all still with me? We're good? All right. Then the Philistines took the ark and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And when the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. If you came to the, the Jonah retreat, we know who Dagon is, right? He's fish god. He's the man of fish. He's half fish, he's half man. He's a merman. So that's Dagon the fish god. And Dagon, the fish gods, brought by the Philistines, who were shipping people. They're Greek fishermen that settled in Palestine. So, um, and Dagon was a god that had authority throughout the lands, popular amongst trading people. Dagon, being fishman god, is the same god that the Ninevites worshipped. Uh, he is in their pantheon stories. He's the father of Baal. So, whenever you hear of the Baals, they're all children of Dagon. But you got to really get into like. Ninevite history, if you want to see that. The big thing with Dagon is he's the giver of life, right? He's the fish god. Fish, there's tons of fish in the sea. They're abundant. They're endless. Um, so they offer the ark of God, and when they bring it into the house of Dagon, and they set it by Dagon, that means they took the ark and they put it at Dagon's feet as though it was bowing to Dagon. That's not something that our Yahweh is going to tolerate, right? So This is great. Again, you got to understand God's, I think there's a sense of humor here if I'm right. Um, So you can defeat my people, I think is what God's about to say here. You can defeat my people, but beating me is a whole matter that's separate from that. So without the help of the Israelites, God's going to defend his own name and his own honor. Again, heavy message, but God doesn't need us. He's inviting us, he welcomes us, but God's honor is going to go on whether or not we do it for him. So in this next chapter, we see God acting as an independent agent amongst the people that are trying to submit him to Dagon. By the way, Dagon's a fake God. He's not a real God. Just want to point that out. He's a man-made God. So from God's perspective, he's not going to do that. The ark historically would have been a trophy. It would have weighed about 750 pounds. So it's a massive, if you count the stone tablets on the inside and everything else, this is a big thing they would carry back. Verse 3, and when the people of Ashdod, that's one of the Philistine towns, arose early in the morning on its face to the earth before the Ark of the Lord. Wait, did I miss it? Th- so they took Dagon and set it in its place again. Did I miss a word or miscopy that? Dagon was on its face because- What does your Bible say there for verse three? When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon on its face. Oh, so I did I deleted something. So the statue of Dagon falls over, and now the statue of Dagon is bowing to the ark. You see the imagery there? So God's fixed things. Now it's truth, and that Dagon is, is beneath the Lord. Um, so I'm thinking the priests walk in, and very superstitious people, right? They were woe to us with the ark coming into the Israelite camp. They're a superstitious people. So what would this say to them? And if the priests walk in early in the morning, they're opening up camp. It contrasts the image of Samuel getting up early in the morning, and opening the doors, but when they come in, they see their god has fallen on the floor, now the statues of Dagon were generally 15 to 20 feet tall, massive stone structures that were cut out, we have copies of it, you can google search and see, archaeologists have dug them up, but there's Dagon fallen on the ground, Um, in, in this sense, God doesn't need people to prop him up, but Dagon does, right? If it wasn't for people, Dagon would be fallen. And then when they arose early the next morning, so they put him back up into his place, nice and solid. I'm thinking they secured him there to make sure he wouldn't fall again. But when they arose the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both palms of its hands were broken off. The head being the thinking part, the hands being the working part. This guy has no brain and no hands. There's no God here. Before the Ark of the Lord, and the head of the Dagon and the palms and the hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left on it. So it implies like the head and the hands were put in the, the doorway. Does, do you read that? So now they're not just superstitious. like, whoa, something just happened here. It just went from the horror movie person that thinks something might be going on to saying, oh no, there's something happening here. Holy moly. So either the Israelites are praying a joke on us, but we just killed 30,000 of them. So that, something's happening here. Look at how they react. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. They make it a new superstitious rule don't step on the threshold. Right? And it becomes this thing. It's like, you know, don't step on the crack. So they make a new rule for themselves. Um, But obviously, there's this idea of has God's glory been diminished because Israel fell? And getting this story right afterwards, the writer's showing God's glory is not diminished. God sets up his own glory. So in the sentence, this is interesting, the nouns in these sentences, notice, are the Philistines and Dagon. God himself, and it's just how this is written, verses 4 and 5, God's not actually in this narrative. Did you catch that? Like the only active nouns here are the Philistines and this statue of Dagon continuing to bow before the ark. Because the ark's just a box, right? The ark of the Lord. So he's not bowing to the Lord, he's just bowing to a symbol of the Lord. So it's something even less than that. So I think there's a little bit of satire and humor here. God gets the Philistines to honor his holiness and power and create new superstitious rules because he's being extremely creative with the Philistines using their kind of imagery to make a point with them. Like he knows how to communicate with them, and it's really subtle. it reminds me of the idea that when Jesus is coming in up into the Jerusalem and the Pharisees come out and they're like, stop having these people worship you. Shut them up. They can't do this. And Jesus says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Because that's how God works. God will be glorified. And if he needs a rock statue of Dagon to glorify him, if he can get a, this stone fake idol to worship him, He can't get the Israelites to worship him, but Dagon's going to. And I just, to me, I just, there's this image of the fact that when God speaks, it's clear. And again, we get this idea of now God's speaking to the Philistines. The the Israelites have ignored him, but he's taking the time to to show his power to a Philistine people. And they're going to respect him. We'll read on. So the priests now see this whole thing happening. God's people fail because they have a dead faith and a corrupt faith. Now the idols have failed, and then they create new little traditions, and next we get consequences, because people aren't listening. And so the Philistines are kind of guessing through what they're supposed to do, and this is what the whole world did before the revelations of God. They just guessed at religion. So, our delights in the law of the Lord, in his law we meditate day and night, we're like a tree planted by the rivers of water, brings forth fruit in his season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. We don't guess our way through life. We got a rock. We got the word of God to go off of. So (laughs) this is a quote from Dave Gusick, and I just thought I'd bring it in. I like it. The Philistines reject God despite the evidence, not because of the evidence. We see that everywhere today. People don't reject God because of the evidence. They reject God despite the evidence. And it's common, and we see it all over the place. It's not that we have to prove there's a God. Like, that's not the challenge. The challenge is, do you want to submit to a holy God or follow your own path in life? So it's easier to ignore God than to, it is to give up our sin that we're clinging to. The Philistines should have acted right here. These are really clear messages from God. And I, I, if you're rooting for the Philistines, you shouldn't be. But if you are... This is the point at which the Philistines should have just called the Israelites up on their phone and said, why don't you just come pick this box up? Because this isn't going to go well for us. But, verse 6, there's a but, they don't do that. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, the ark of the Lord of Israel must not remain with us. They respect the symbol of God more than the Israelites did. For his hand is harsh towards us, and Dagon our God. It's almost like if these stories get back to Israel, it's like God's trying to talk to Israel too. Like I can, this can go bad. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, what should we do with the ark of God of Israel? They're just guessing. What do we do with this thing? God keeps upping the ante with them. Ashdod, Gath, and Ekron are all Philistine cities. They had a few of them. The Septuagint, the Septuagint actually has an addition to verse 6. And I'll add it. This, the Septuagint the Greek version of the Bible, uh, one of the earlier renditions. And there's actually a passage that says, and the cities and the fields of all that region burst up, and mice were produced, and there was confusion of great death in the city. So some people take that Septuagint addition, which wasn't kept in the Bible because they couldn't verify it with other sources. But an implication there is that with the tumors, the rats and the death in these cities, that this is maybe where a plague, the idea of a plague was introduced to humanity. Like there's something happening here where they can't control it. When you mix rats into the equation, scientists would say that sounds a little like bubonic plague hitting these cities, but it's an ancient description of that. The word tumors there is opal, and that's not opal like the stone or the gem, but opal like a hemorrhoid. Like there were little growths that started to pop up all over their body. So there was a physical impact on the Philistines because of their spiritual failings. Likely, at the very least, you got a nation of people that ignore God and there happens to be a disease that spreads amongst those people. Sound familiar? And you hate to say it, and I'm not trying to make that direct connection, but we also can't ignore that that connection has existed in history that sometimes the spiritual condition of a nation leads to its physical condition. And that those differentiations are things that we shouldn't just flippantly say exist. That's foolish, but we should be cautious about how we pray on those things. Like maybe the answer to physical illness is spiritual prayer for our nation and for our people, that we come back to the Lord God Almighty and respect and honor Him in our ways. Right? and that those things can be connected. Or at least to not pray that way is to be just like the Philistines and the Israelites in this particular narrative, to just ignore that connection. And to me, that's one of those things. I'm not quick to say those things are connected. When, we, when things are tragic and tough in a nation, that's a tough thing to make that claim. But I am saying it's perfectly okay to pray and honor the Lord God Almighty with our lives and how we do things uh, in the midst of those kinds of things going on. We'll go back to our narrative. And they answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. Their solution is, send it to the other city. Uh, Gath is also a Philistine city. So they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. So it was, after they carried away, that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. They get the same disease that they had in Ashdod. So it's contagious. We know that. Uh, and he strikes the men. There's two works. One is against the city, and then the other is that against the men, which implies the against the city part as a strong implication that as the Ark of God moves into the city, the city itself has structural problems. And so in Philistine cities, the entrance of the city would have the Philistine gods and statues right there. So one image, if you're trying to picture this, when it says God came against the city, and he struck the men, the city part are the physical structures, like these idols came tumbling down as the ark goes past them, just like the statue of Dagon did in the last passage. So they move this thing around, and they get these obvious symbols that God's hand is at work, Um, and the symbol of God then is is inactive with Israel, but it's very active with the Philistines. So it's not the box with the power, it's God choosing when he, he wants to speak and how. So the Philistine takes this symbol of victory, tries to offer it up to their God, and now suddenly they're being controlled by it. Like, God's flipped the tables on them. They have councils of elders figuring out what to do with this thing. So it seems to me God can't be controlled, and he won't be. Verse 10, Therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron, another Philistine city. So it was, as the ark of the God came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They've brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us. And our people. Again, two pieces there to kill us and to kill our people. It's not that one is, it's the people would be the human term, but the us would be like the priests speaking for their gods, right? They're killing two groups there. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the Ark of God, the Ark of the God of Israel, and let it go back to its own place so that it doesn't kill us and our people. And there, for there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. It doesn't go up to Yahweh, by the way, it just goes to the heavens, right? So they still don't understand who to pray to. You would think if you were a Philistine, you'd be like, okay, this Yahweh seems pretty powerful. I'm going to become a Yahweh follower. That would be the logical decision, wouldn't it? But they don't because that's all some people are. They can see the power, recognize the power, understand the power, and still choose to worship Dagon because they want to worship Dagon. So God's word is a two-edged sword. It's life to some people, and it's clearly death to the Philistines. This doesn't change in the New Testament. That's the Old Testament God. No, that's the New Testament God too. Hebrews, Hebrews, New Testament, 4.12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It doesn't change. It just gets individualized. Instead of dealing with nations, he deals with individuals. So the cities of Philistine, they don't want the Ark of God. They don't want his law. They don't want his provision and they don't want his care. They want to send it all back to Israel. As we carry God's word in our hearts, we become the representation of God's word to the people around us. If they treat a box like this, how do you think they'll treat us? Matthew chapter 10. They don't treat us well. Because if we come reminding them of what God says, that's not always going to be a good situation. Good people will love it, and other people won't. It's a divider. 2 Corinthians 2.15. New Testament for we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish to the one who to the one we are the savor of death unto death to the other we are the savor of life unto life and who is sufficient for these things why is it god uses us that way who are we to be that to other people but when you remind people of god to some people that's wonderful and beautiful and awesome and to other people that's just a curse because they're fighting god And they don't want to be reminded of that. They'd rather just send that image away and get it out of their town and get it out of their city. In Gergesenes, they took the incarnate God, Jesus Christ, and they told him to get out of their town, right? Because their pigs got killed. So this is, at times, we see entire groups of people. This is what's going on in the Middle East right now. They're trying to expunge all Jews and Christians from that part of the land. This is what's happening in China, They're going into homes, taking people away, and they never get seen again. This is what's happening in northern Nigeria this last week. Had a whole other group of Christians get rounded up and killed. Like, in the last hundred years, more Christians have been martyred on the planet than in the last 2,000 years. We're living in those times when we see Christians all over getting killed. Praise the Lord, we live in Minnesota. I mean, honestly, we have it easy. Yet we have it so easy that maybe we don't take it seriously enough. Right? And we got... You know, we we have to think about what's going on down in Shiloh. So the Philistines, the ark, it symbolizes death to them. The ark just symbolizes bad tumors, right? And that's all the ark is to the Philistines. But to Israel, it symbolizes a, a different kind of promise. So even though the Philistines reject God, they still understand God's power. God will be honored in that kind of way. So they send it back to the people of God. I'm going to end on this passage from Psalm 1. Again, this is part of like when you're doing other Bible study and stuff just resonates. When you're doing, I wanted to end on a nice note because this is a pretty heavy set of chapters. It's why I did three of them tonight. It's like, wow, this is harsh. Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Blessed is the person who doesn't listen to Phineas. Right? Go hang out with Samuel nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf doesn't wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. That's the promise we have. That's God's word to us. And frankly, if the Philistines all repented, and like, I, I think the God would have hung out with them. like There would have been a blessing there. It's actually the same promise he gives to all Gentiles and everybody all over the world. Blessed is the person who delights in his law. And what a good law. Like, don't steal from each other, right? Don't rob each other. Don't serve false idols. And don't murder each other. That's not good. Let's not do that, right? It's a beautiful law. It's a wonderful law. It's a law that's holy and gives honor to an almighty God, which in truth is our creator and our maker. And we just honor him, and it's beautiful. So these are tough chapters. I I hope we learn from them like and we absorb them like as believers we're again that idea that we're just we're big enough to handle the tough messages and the tough messages when they mistreat and dishonor god god leaves israel for a while and he's going to just go work on his own he's going to go find some new people to work with first to the jew then to the gentile same battle plan that jesus had first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And we see that mirrored in the Old Testament. We're going to see it again in the New Testament. That's how God works. But the invitation should be there. There's also a curse if you reject and dishonor God, and that's there too. We got to just, it's there, we just read it. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we thank you for your word. Even when it's tough to hear, even when there's passages that are things that are a stumbling block for some, they're a cornerstone for others. Lord, we love you. You're our cornerstone. And we want to delight in your law and in your word. And Lord, help us to not disrespect it. All this started in Samuel, at the beginning of Samuel, with these priests that thought it was theirs to take instead of theirs to give. So Lord, let us, as your holy priesthood in the church, Lord, help us to give, to just be abundant givers of ourselves, our time, our resources, that we love one another and we, uh, we do things in the way you've told us to do it. And Lord, help us to be um, your children and your servants. And that when we speak your word, we do it truthfully and, and accurately. Lord, if you speak to us, help us to be like Samuel and just say, we hear you and we're there. Help us to not be like Hophni and Phinehas. And we just do whatever we want to do and think it's great and make a big noise about it that doesn't amount to anything but death. Um, Lord, help us to just hear what's being taught here. Um, And Lord, help us to open our eyes as we talk and pray after the teaching tonight. Lord, may your Holy Spirit just move amongst us. May we edify one another. May you you give us words of knowledge to speak encouragement to one another and pray for one another. Uh, Lord, help us to just be people of the book, people of the faith. In Jesus' name.